Welcome to Governmentality, the podcast based in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where everything's political. We'll talk you through the opinions of old people and young people and help you to understand how all the buzz in the beehive affects you. Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast, Governmentality. I think this is our first podcast with a new name. Yes, rebrand. I hope you're all excited to be here. Today we have on special guest Natalia Albert, who is the recently announced uh, Deputy Leader of the Opportunities Party. So thank you for coming on, Natalia. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, definitely. So um, I think we'll just we'll just dive right in with our, our, quick fire our questions. T- typical quickfire questions. So we ask, we ask everyone, all the politicians come on, just a couple of questions, just to sort mm-hmm. of get people... A sense of where you guys stand. Love it. So for the first question, in five words or less, what do you think is the most important issue affecting young people today? Cost of living. I've got a yes or no question. Do you plan to increase mental health support for university students in New Zealand? Yes. Yes. All right. Do you support increased funding for public transport? Yes or no? Yes. Final yes or no question. Will you revoke fees free for university students? Yes, with the caveat that you won't find it on our website, but yes. Yes, you will. Yes. Okay. Now, final question. This is just more of a bit of a fun one, but favorite musician? Yes. So I'm going to say two because I'm Mexican. So I have a Spanish-speaking artist mm-hmm. and an English-speaking party uh, artist. And I am the queen of pop. Mm-hmm. I love that. I'm not ashamed to say that. <laughs> so my favorite artist in Spanish is Shakira. So I've been following Spanish. her, but I only like her Spanish work. I don't actually like the her songs in English. <laughs> and in English, it kind of shifts and changes. But at the moment, it's got to be the leading political thought Theorist Taylor Swift, <laughs> iconic. Iconic. Okay, <laughs> Love to hear. Favorite it. songs then from each of those artists. Uh, Shakira, uh, "Donde están los ladrones?" Where are the thieves? Which is a song out of her first album. And Taylor Swift, I think it has to be "Shake It Off." Fair Just enough. makes me so happy. Yes, every iconic time. Iconic hit. You hear it and you're like, I'm in a good mood. All the time. Consi- the consistency nice. that song has <laughs> on me. I just, yeah, I'm not that heady or intellectual about my music, and fair I just enough. like to feel good. That's fair. Cool. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so you just spoke a little bit about your your Mexican heritage. So, what kind of brought you into New Zealand politics? I suppose. So, how did you kind of end up here? What kind of brought you into the sphere? Yeah. Um, so when I moved to New Zealand in 2011, mm-hmm. I was 29 mm-hmm. and I was fairly lost and broke. Mm. <laughs> and I left relatable. Mex- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very much. So um, and when I moved to New Zealand, I sacrificed so much to be here that I decided I was going to be really intentional in mm. doing things that mattered to me. Mm. And understanding politics and how to discuss politics was a really important goal that I'd always had because my mother was a public servant for Mexico. She was mm. a diplomat for the Mexican government and a single mother. And the way I heard her talk about politics when I was growing up, she was very passionate about it, mm. seemed really polarizing. Like even before we were talking about polarization, it felt like every time my mother had conversations about politics, and I don't know, I don't think it's fair to say it was her, it ended up in these awful arguments. Like my uncles would stand up and leave, my yeah. cousins would yell at us, and I couldn't understand why. Mm. And it felt really uncomfortable for me. So anyway, that happened. That was in my childhood. I did I studied a bachelor's in commerce. I did all the bad decisions you do in your 20s. And then I moved here and I was like, I felt I had to study something again because Mm. I wasn't being hired. Um, And I said, well, I want to understand politics. I want to understand politics and I want to be able to talk about it in a way that doesn't end up in this argument that I felt my family always got into. Mm. And so I started working in the public service from the bottom because as a migrant woman from a non-English speaking country in that time, 
the hesitation to hire us, I think, was more evident than it is now. Mm. So I started off washing dishes and parking cars and just working my way up full time while studying part time political science online through Massey University. And I decided to focus in New Zealand because as a when I was growing up, my mother was a diplomat for the Mexican government. So I lived in Vancouver when I was four mm. and then in Chicago when I was 13. And she always had this very strong value of being a responsible migrant and mm. understanding the context of the countries we were in. So with that same principle, I was like, I'm going to try and understand as much as I can about New Zealand through a political science lens. Yeah. So I studied that for 10 years part time. I did an undergrad, a postgrad certificate, and then a master's at Vic Uni through research that I finished in January. And I've just in the process of starting my PhD and getting accepted into the program in School of Government at Vic Uni cool. through political science. Exciting. Okay, but what convinced you to run for politics? Right. So after that crusade of studying academically political science in New Zealand quite actively, I quit my job in November after finishing my master's. And I said, I want to see the other side of politics. I feel I've got a good grasp historically, culturally, academically, hmm. and I want to volunteer for a political party. And the only political party I would do that with was the Opportunities Party. Because of my focus on polarization and how to avoid it, I felt the Opportunities Party was the only one that could work across the political spectrum. And I know from my studies and my own personal experience that that's key in diffusing the cultural polarization and political polarization we have. Mm. So I emailed them to volunteer. And they said, yeah, sure, but have you considered being a candidate? And here I am, three months later, being named deputy leader of the party. Very cool. Very nice. Nice. It's a bit long-winded answer, but... Well, yeah, yeah. Okay, no. so yeah, I mean... There's always a story behind so, it, right? In short, basically, it's because you care about polarization and you figure... As yeah, a I care about politics. I care about the role of politics and mm -hmm. I care about using politics to diffuse polarization. Yeah, that's okay. at the crux of it. Nice. Nice. Yeah, so I think on that polarization, that seems to be a, a big topic of yours. You're always talking about that. I always see you on, like, Instagram and TikTok <laughs> and things, being like, social polarization. So... Obviously, I think that that's an issue that a lot of young people, I don't know if they struggle with it, but it's mm. definitely something that we're aware of is very present, right? Mm. So I think that my first response to that would be like, is that really a bad thing? Because if I think mm. that something is a bad or dangerous policy and I think it is socially destructive, mm. why should I stop myself from speaking out against something that I think causes active harm? Mm. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. And I think you shouldn't stop speaking out. I think there's something different between advocating for morally right, inclusive, equitable outcomes mm -hmm. and something different that I think is at the heart of polarization, which is I will fundamentally disengage with anybody that disagrees with this view in a really binary zero-sum game kind of way. So hmm. I feel there's a way of advocating and pushing for the policies you believe in without making it a finite conversation where you're shutting the door down mm -hmm. because someone doesn't agree with you, which is where I feel we are at the moment. True. So I... effectively you are saying that you support like increased discourse around politics that doesn't involve sort of cancelization, like cancelizing people. Correct. And I'm just to, for the record, I'm opposed to cancel culture. Mm -hmm. I'm opposed to regulating language to the socially. Mm -hmm. So I feel this is the other distinction that I would like to make and why I think we are a bit lost in this conversation and we're not getting it quite right. I can advocate and believe very strongly about my views. Mm. 
that in my case, for example, are very progressive. I'm in favor of supporting underrepresented groups. I believe in systemic oppression. So I believe that there needs to be an antidote to systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the antidote to that is at an institutional level. Right. But what does that look like? Right. So that looks like looking at the policies and throwing rocks at the institution. So in this case, it would be the public service. Right. You look at the government and the politicians, but not my friends and family. Okay, but like on a very concrete level, what would that look like policy-wise? Like if you were in government, what would that look like? Oh, sure. Um, in terms of progressive policies that are equitable. Well, like how would you t- you're talking about transforming the institutions. What does that look like in policy terms? Right. So there isn't one answer for that, but I'll give you an example of what that could look like. Mm. And this might seem a bit random, but stick with me. The internal complaint process yeah. within institutions. Government specifically. So if I look at the public service, Mm -hmm. it employs thousands of people. Hmm. At the moment, they have a diversity crisis in leadership, right? So the leadership of the public service isn't diverse. No. (laughs) Right? The double Chris. Right? The (laughs) double Chris. The 98% Pakia New Zealanders chief executives. Hmm. Just with this one example, if I look at into why that's happening... There's a systemic discrimination somewhere, right? This isn't meritocracy. This is there's something wrong in that jump from level of management into senior management. That something happens that people fall off. And at the moment, we can't really identify what those barriers are because the internal complaint process isn't effective. So when you ask the public service, why haven't you diversified leadership? Or how do you know you're not discriminating at a level where you can't diversify leadership? They say, well, because we've gotten no complaints. It's like, no, no, that doesn't mean that. That could mean that your internal complaint process isn't effective. Mm. So how do you propose on making it more effective? Right. Example? So in this example, it's first acknowledging. So if the public, so if I was in, in government right now, I would talk to the public service commissioner, mm. sit him down, show him the data, be like, can you please acknowledge that the internal complaint process isn't effective as the first step? The second step is I would like a plan from the public service commissioner as to how you are going to make this policy more effective. And I would ask him to ask his chief executive to look at the data of this policy of internal complaint process. So I'm just narrowing down on this one thing, right? But I think this one policy could have massive impacts Mm -hmm. on how to make the public service more diverse and more equitable. And there's a lot of examples like that throughout institutions that I think need to be tackled. But when we're talking about polarization and people with different views at the dinner table mm-hmm. or in a social context, I feel that it would help if we would keep the door open with right. people that have fundamental views. And I'm not even talking about the extremes because those people, fine, don't engage. But our polarization is such at the moment that we won't even talk to the people that are on the fence mm. or don't know. We've become so righteous in our views and we think we were so certain in the information we have, we've lost our capacity to be curious or to test at a social level. Hmm. And that's what I mean by the dangers of polarization. Yeah, I think I think thinking about that, obviously it's easy to say that you like tackle institutions, but when it comes to more of a social issue, and like I think we, we see this a lot of the time with social media and because you end up in like echo chambers of little, little holes and you just end up going further down because as soon as you engage with one thing, it'll show you more of that same content, right? And I think that's a big reason for the polarization that we see, especially in politics in today's society. So when things as fundamental as those like shape people's lives and exist and we engage with them so frequently, how do we actually stop 
people because it, I think it's a lot harder to just say you need to be more open-minded and engage 100%. when you're consuming so much of this other content that's telling you otherwise. So like how, how do you actually balance that when it's such a big issue? Is, I, isn't it something that almost you're just like, well, it's almost a lost cause? No, 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 absolutely not. And I think you've hit it on the nail with the social cohesion, uh, the social uh, media element that's mm. intensified this issue. And even though there isn't one short, easy answer, I would say that one thing we can all do today is talk to more people that we don't agree with. So if mm -hmm. we can't control the algorithm and the algorithm is going to take us down the path it's going to take us down and I can't control it, I can't control it now as a candidate, I can't control it as a student, I can't control it as a, as a citizen of Wellington. What I can control is when I'm talking to people, encourage them to talk to humans that they might not agree with, or at least give them 10 more seconds yeah. to explain themselves. If we just do that at a social level, the effect of the algorithm wouldn't be that much. The reason social media is winning is because we've stopped engaging with people and our only mechanism of input and incoming information is coming from an algorithm. So the only antidote to that is human conversations. And yeah, so like sure. you said, increasing our interest and our capacity for a complex political conversation with someone that has different views to you. Mm, definitely. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing to, to think about. And We'll move now on to, I think, um, climate policy because this is, sorry, we're, we're doing a big 180 yeah. here. Yeah, so flipping from <laughs> polarization, but your I party's think... recently released its new climate package, right? Yeah. So we're just going to ask you a couple of questions about that. Mm-hmm. You, you can start us off if you want. But. Well, I, I think I think firstly just what the fundamental basis of it is. Um, we heard from like Jessica Hammond when she came on our podcast um, earlier in the kind of campaign, and this may have changed. Is that she said we need to tackle like emissions in New Zealand. Um, why is it like why is it that specific? I'm like interested to hear your takes on why we can't like internationalize the ETS things like that. If you have any thoughts, um, yeah, what. What does TOP believe in for climate policy? What do you plan to do? What are your main focuses in this area? Yeah, great question. And I'm so happy that uh, Jessica front-footed that for me. And now I can come here with a more developed policy. Mm. So I have it in front of me, in full disclosure to your listeners. And our climate, we're calling it a climate opportunities policy. And it right. has three key areas. So I'm going to read them yeah. briefly. Um it says the policy summary is to transform New Zealand for widespread rapid emissions reductions. We propose three system level policies. One, empowering farmers to be biodiversity champions. And I can talk about that if mm -hmm. you want. Two, give the emission trading scheme a bit more teeth. Yeah. And the way we want to do that is by removing forestry as the only way. Right. So at the moment, what we want to do is think or what, what, it, what we're assuming is that by planting trees, Mm. that's going to be enough. We think that more needs to be done. It can't be the only thing that we're doing, and we want to integrate that into the emissions trading scheme. Mm -hmm. And third and final is electrifying our national urban bus fleet by 2030, which is a popular policy. I think the Greens have a very similar one yeah. around that. So in a nutshell, that's the three key areas of our climate opportunities policies for now. Cool, yeah. Okay. So just to summarize that again, so it's effectively increasing biodiversity on farmland. Correct. Um, like, like electrifying the bus fleet yep. and making the ETS have more teeth. So especially, I think the first two are fairly, fairly obvious mm. like, and fairly, like, fairly straightforward. But as for making the ETS have more teeth, what does that look like? What is concretely, if Toffers in government, 
having the say of this, what is that going to look like? Yep. So what I'm just going to read, just to mm. be really clear for our listeners, yeah. we will strengthen the emission trading scheme by excluding new forestry, instituting a hard cap on units, and empowering the Climate Change Commission to set the carbon price through a new official carbon rate and reinvesting more of the scheme's revenues into renewable energy development, emissions, free transport, and a carbon dividend. Cool. So why are you excluding new forestry developments when they're actually good at reducing carbon? Yeah, that was the first question I remember (laughs) asking when I read this policy. I was like, can you tell me how we're going to explain this? And I found that response made a lot of sense to me. I also just need to disclose, this isn't my area of deep expertise. That's okay. Which is why I'm reading. Um, So this idea that we're going to offset carbon by just planting trees, I Mm. think has overtaken the potential of the emission trading schemes. And we feel that by removing that and putting that somewhere else or building that into another um, regulatory mechanism, Mm. we can diversify the way we look at the emission trading scheme so people can be, I guess, a bit more creative and understand that it's not just about planting trees. That's my understanding. I could be wrong because, like I said, this isn't my area, but I think that's about right. Just just a brief summary to all our listeners who might not be familiar with what the emission trading scheme is. Yes. Just because we're doing it, like, I think we explored a little bit in a a very first or second episode about climate change. Yeah, yeah. But essentially what the ETS is is that um, a company that wants to emit carbon has to buy a certain, like, number of credits from the government, they call carbon credits or ETS credits or something like that. And that, that is bought in the open market. And if you don't have those, you can't emit the carbon. Or you have to just pay extortionate rates. Yes, or you have you to pay do. extortionate rates, um, exactly. I think that I just, I think my issue with that is I just don't really understand why you can't have both at the same time, right? Because yep. if planting trees is the easiest way for people to do mm-hmm. that, you can be like, oh yeah, we like run out of space and that's bad. But I think currently we still do have an amount of space that is able to be used. But also why can't we just internationalize? Like, well, like mm. why can't we use carbon credits overseas and help to plant trees or like reduce emissions in overseas countries? Because climate change is not just a New Zealand exclusive issue, right? Like it's a global issue. So on, on any scale, if we can um, reduce emissions anywhere in the world, why shouldn't we do that? Yeah, and I think that's a completely fair question. I do have an answer to that here Mm. that (laughs) I can read off that I think will be way more articulate than what I can answer. So it says, since 1990, our gross emissions have actually increased 26%. And we have relied heavily on forestry to offset our emissions. Mm. We need to end our reliance on forestry because we can't plant our way to net zero, which is what I was trying, I guess, to explain at the beginning. Um, New Zealand has observed too much competition between pastoral grazing and forestry which has been large-scale conversions of productive land to pine. Mm. The conversions have a negative impact on biodiversity and water quality and impacts our rural communities and ecosystems. So I guess that's kind okay, of like yeah. our okay, explanation I mean, to that. I don't know. I guess, I guess on that point then, so removing the forest, like new forestry from the emissions trading scheme mm. would pretty much reduce the, like the, any sort of um, promotion, like, sorry, reduce the incentives to plant more trees, essentially, right? Mm. That's what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and the issue you've raised about this whole planting new trees and stuff is that they've just been like stands of pine. Yeah. Right. But surely a better solution could just be like excluding, um, like like including non like native native um, plantations. Sorry, including native plantations in um, the emissions trading scheme instead of these like instead of pine trees. Like if that's what the issue you're concerned with, why? Yeah. New forestry entirely. I think that's a completely fair point, <laughs> and I don't think I have anything um, mm. super smart to counter that. I think that one of our goals as the Opportunities Party is 
which I fully support, is to simplify things as much as possible and try and make things as easy as possible for the market and the people that are at the other end of the mm-hmm. services and policies that we're doing. And I would like to think that what we're trying to do with the emissions trading scheme is just simplify it and make it as effective as possible mm-hmm. and as simple as possible. And I guess this is our way of trying to do that. But I don't think that answers your question. I guess it's just my two cents. That's okay. I think we've had a good discussion about that. I think that um, like another slightly different area, I'm not sure if this is entirely climate related, but you know, kind of climatey in nature is like with your teal card policy with like Mm. good public transport systems. Mm. That's all good. Um, You propose to give the equivalent of like $1,500 to people for like e-scooters. So I think I'm just interested to know, like, I think, I think that electric transport is good like Mm -hmm. e-scooters but I think like why can't you just put that money into good public transport instead of letting drunk teenagers go around on e-scooters in Wellington Central I don't know like a thousand dollars in e-scooter credit just seems like a lot I guess yeah no I absolutely agree and I think we we want to try and do both um I do feel that what the one thousand five hundred dollars for the e-scooters which I agree that i have makes very mixed feelings about them uh-huh. is we are trying to give people as many options as possible to not use cars right okay, right yeah. and we have a very strong focus on young people and students with a teal card and uh-huh. this is us trying to give people a the benefit of the doubt that they won't be drunk using it please people don't <laughs> try those things drunk <laughs> but also just a lot as many options i think one of the things that also attracted mm. me to the opportunities party is that we recognize the complexity in some of these policies where they're one size fits all. Hmm. We understand that a lot of these policies just aren't one size fits all. And what I like about the teal card personally is that it does kind of break down heaps of areas that matter to a specific group of people that's achievable, easy to implement, clear to understand, and will have an Mm -hmm. impact on the long term. And so providing money for e-scooters and e-bikes is one way to get people to be like, okay, I can't do the bus, I can't do this, but there's another option for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Um, I think just if you're spending money in those types of areas, I think it's always like a good idea to want to have as many and as good transport options as you can. Mm. But when we have issues like literally not having enough drivers, why is that money better spent on like alternative transport measures instead of like incentivizing people to become bus drivers, extending routes, like just Mm. making those existing options more reliable? Yeah. And that's a really good question about, so the tensions between kind of workforce and infrastructure are real. Yeah. Right. So if you look at the Let's Get Wellington Moving work program and the Mm -hmm. scope of that work program, um, we're in favor of Let's Get Wellington Moving. I'm in favor of the vision. I think it's a really important piece of work. And I've had a lot of conversations with um, it, independent um, and different uh, stakeholders and people that are involved in Let's Get Wellington Moving, right? So this tension that you present around do you pay for infrastructure or um, transport units, yeah, like trains or ferries or buses or bikes mm-hmm. versus the workforce is a real tension that every party and every government is going to have to manage. So at the moment, the problem with the workforce and buses is real, right? We don't have Mm -hmm. enough bus drivers. That's one of the problems. But the other real problem is that our ferries are 30 years underinvested and we need to pay for new ferries. If we've got all of these things that we need to pay for, why spend the money on e-scooters and e-bikes and stuff? Like that's a lot of money that you could be going towards you know, redoing the ferries or like adding. I suppose it kind of comes back to what we were saying about wanting to have more options. But I think it's just asking why you're prioritizing those options instead of 
workforce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think that's a fair question. Um, (laughs) I don't know if I have a a really clinical or technical answer to that. I, I just have a feeling that, I mean, we also have a policy that's about to come out. It's not come out. Now I'm going to do what Jessica did around immigration, Mm -hmm. which will very much play into this workforce catastrophe that Mm -hmm. we're in, where I'm not saying immigration is the only solution to it, but it's hard to not argue that because of COVID standing up our immigration infrastructure has been really difficult and a lot of sectors have suffered through it. Mm. So I think it needs like a different strategy than this. And I don't think they're opposing. Okay. Yeah, so I yeah. think we will tackle that. And with this policy, we It'll were just trying. Effort. Yeah, we were just trying to give people as many options as possible that aren't Definitely. a car. I think, yeah, now moving on into just wider, why we should vote for top, what does mm-hmm. it look like your prioritization is. Um, I think w- with the rising kind of polls and things we're seeing, especially in favor of like a national and act government, at least at this present moment, that looks like um, the current standing. If top were to get into government, what would a national act top government look like what things are you willing to let those parties have what things are non-negotiable mm. if you have one thing to push in that kind of context what would it be I guess mm. yeah that's a great question so just in case that wasn't super clear we will work with anybody yep. right that yep. is one of the attractions for me at least and one mm-hmm. of the uh, values that top brings if we were to work with um, the national government and act I know that the teal card is potentially a non-negotiable for us. I don't want to put words in Raf's mouth, but I know yeah. that that's a pretty fundamental thing for us. So young people understanding the difference between that not all students are young and not all young people are students and that we need to actually tackle and support young people in general mm-hmm. uh, through the teal card for us is a really important thing. We also believe that the policies that are presented by National Act need to be fiscally responsible. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you need to have the money for the policies that you're saying. So, And that needs to be transparent mm-hmm. and communicated and visible to the voters. And the, sec- the third and final thing I would say about that is that we do have very progressive liberal policies. And if nothing, I think we would hopefully balance some of the more radical policies that National and ACT have that might favor one demographic over another. Yeah. And so I would, would like you to be think... willing to let the ACT Party cut welfare? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like I don't I I don't think I've thought that far ahead as a candidate mm-hmm. or as a party, but I feel like we understand that campaigning and governing are different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And campaigning's built on us providing uh, our values and a picture of what we mm-hmm. could do. But once we get into govern- government and we all start to govern, different levers play and play that I can't commit to. But I guess what I want to convey to your listeners about the Opportunist Party is that we are progressive. Mm-hmm. We are in favor of fairness, equitable and transparency. So whatever policy National Enact want to put, those would be the elements we would be challenging of but whatever at, policy At the same have. time, you don't have a lot of bottom lines like that you... No, but I think that's a that's a virtue of our f- political flexibility that I think will also help depolarize mm. the big parties that I feel are more and more to their extremes, which is enhancing the polarization mm. that I keep mm. going back to. So I feel it's really important to have a party now more than ever that understands that political flexibility and political creativity 
and political collaboration are really important principles, more so potentially than the amount of bottom lines we could have. It's more about yeah. how we would yeah. do things. Cool. Um, I think thinking about that, like almost to be a little bit cynical, I guess. Is <laughs> Love it. Like, I think a lot like a lot of young people don't feel like National and Act accurately represent mm. their interests, right? Mm. In an election that looks like it's heading that way, mm. why would people vote for top, especially given that you're not even polling at like a government rate at the moment when there is an election that people feel like is really important and is heavily contested? Why should they vote for top for something that might even, you know, like might not even occur for them? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question and one we get a lot. And I guess what I would like your listeners to take away, if nothing else of what I've said today, mm. is that this election, more than ever, we need to think about politics differently. Mm. And I think that voting and backing the winning horse, whatever you think that is, is potentially a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I would like to encourage people to vote with their values and to mm. vote creatively and to think about things in a way that they've never thought about them before. So and having said that, I do think Top will get in because Raf Manji, our party leader, will win in Islam, right? Which is the electorate he's standing in. And the strategy for Top is that he will win in yeah. Islam. And then we will raise the party vote through all the campaigning that all the candidates are doing. So there is a likelihood that this election we will get 5%. But even if you think you we won't, because more cynically, mm. I would like students especially to think about voting creatively, differently, and values-based, not strategically or behind the winning horse, because I think that's the mentality that's gotten us to a position where mm. the big parties are getting bigger, the ideas are being polarized, and the transparency and the flexibility is being lost in our democracy. And mm. I think it's very problematic. Cool, yeah. So, so from a party perspective, mm. that makes sense. From more of a candidate perspective for yourself, right? Yeah. Um, why would you encourage people to vote for you as a specific candidate for Wellington Central over, mm. I don't know, Scott Sheeran or Tamitha Paul or mm. Ibrahim Omar, who you're, who you're all going up against, I, I suppose. Especially on that point, because in the previous elections of Wellington Central, we've had a situation where all the three main candidates are going to get through no matter what. Right? Like, we always had Nicola Willis, Grant Robinson and James Shaw. They were in, even if, you didn't, if they weren't doing a constituency. But in this election, Tamitha Paul's not, um, not running on the list. Ibrahim Omar's far enough down the list, it's probably like he's not going to get in as a list MP. Um, I'm not sure about Scott Sharon, but because National hasn't released that list, but I don't imagine he'll be as high up as either. So in a situation like that, mm. we're really having to choose between who we want in Parliament to represent us. Because Wellington, I think, becomes more of a focus point here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so for what candidates. Personally, can you do mm -hmm. for Wellington? Like why should Wellingtonians vote for you? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. <laughs> Sorry, there was a lot of context there. No, and that's <laughs> great context. I think that's yeah. a really important perspective that I don't know if everyone has fully um not understood because that sounds really condescending, but fully um, internalized, internalized yeah. or, or even considered. So I think to start off with, all candidates, in my opinion, are great, right? I think any one of us will represent Wellington well. Mm. As people and individuals, I trust them and I respect them. And I feel that disagreeing with them isn't enough for me to bash any one of them. So anything mm. I say now is solely on what I think I can do, but I don't think any of them couldn't. But having said that, I do feel like dedicated leadership in Wellington Central is needed now more than ever, given the infrastructure issues we have, the issues with the universities. And I have been living and breathing these issues for 12 years as a public servant and an academic mm. in Wellington Central. I have been campaigning for underrepresented groups 
for 12 years in Wellington. I have been working with migrant women from non-English-speaking countries. I have been working with gender non-for-profits for 12 years in Wellington Central. I have been knee-deep in policy that affects the city more so than a lot of people. And in that way, my understanding of Wellington Central and the issues of this electorate, I think, are really deep and are really... Um, They're really, what's the word I'm looking for? Genuine, like thorough. Like I've, mm. I've been here as a student, as a public servant, and as an advocate for 12 years, dedicated to understanding the heartbeat of Wellington. Mm. And I feel I have that higher than my competing colleagues mm. at this moment. Uh, my intellectual understanding of the issues of Wellington and New Zealand I've been chipping away at every day for the past 12 mm. years, and I just understand it better. Okay, I think. let me cut in just there, because you mentioned stuff about infrastructure and the uni stuff. So yeah. it's going to like concrete, like what would you do if you were representing well? Oh, Central. yeah, so my focus like, is... Yeah, focus, focus, yeah. but like in regards to the uni cuts, because that's been yeah. big news recently. There's yeah. The new consultation documents have been released. A lot of people have been reading it. Yep. A lot of people haven't been happy about it. Yep. What would you personally do in regards yep. to the universities? My key things for Wellington Central are higher transparency from the people that are managing Let's Get Wellington Moving. No, no, but in regards to the university cuts. Oh, to university, just, sorry. Just university yeah. cuts. So it's pretty similar. I think the universities and the Tertiary Education Commission, which is responsible for funding, need to have way more transparency into how they're making this, these decisions. So I would work incredibly hard to hold both of those institutions accountable in terms of releasing more information of higher quality and holding them accountable of the how they're making the decisions they're making. Because I think at the moment, a lot of our frustration comes from the lack of not knowing and not understanding. And the little information we do have access to, we don't agree with. Their how, I think, falls short. Okay, but mm. if you were in, in, in office, would you advocate for increased funding to universities? Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. And mm. anything to improve the conditions both of infrastructure and staff and quality of content that supports the universities I will campaign for. Okay. Cool. Now, you mentioned Let's Get Wellington Moving, so let's touch on that quite briefly. Yeah. Um, so there's been, a lot of, there's been a lot of news, I guess, and like headlines recently about National saying we need to get rid of it, Labour being like on the fence about it, people saying maybe like Rail and Auckland's a bad idea, and presumably in Wellington too later on. Um, You've said that you support Let's Get Wellington Moving. Would you, care a couple of, like, would you care to share a couple of thoughts about that? Absolutely. I am very succinctly. I believe in the vision. Mm. I believe in the scope. I would challenge the management of the program. I think there's been way too much time between planning and implementation and very little information that's gone out to people. Mm -hmm. So I would challenge the management of the program and the transparency of the information they've released. Mm-hmm. But I would keep the program going. I don't think canning it now is a good idea financially, socially, logistically, or politically. Okay, so you are fully in favor of Let's Get One Moving. Fully in favor. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming and chatting about your campaign. It's been very useful to hear all of your insights. I guess this is a final opportunity to, you can say whatever you like, encourage people, call to action, whatever you feel is necessary, <laughs> if you have any last things to say. Yeah, so I guess my pitch is, if you want a fresh voice in parliament, vote party, vote top, mm. um, and just go out and vote, regardless of who you're voting for. I think that's really important. Mm.
Cool. How to vote. I'm sure we'll do a podcast on that step by step. Step by step. How to enroll to vote. How to vote. Yes, the logistics are between. complex. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>